I V M. Hello and welcome. This is Govind Rajathiraj presenting to you the latest segment of Business Dot Next on Bloomberg Quint. Bringing about an entrepreneurial mindset in a large company can be challenging, sometimes difficult, and sometimes the lack of that can actually lead to the demise of many, many successful companies. Equally, young people looking for opportunities as entrepreneurs need to have a direction, a map. How do you do this, and what's common between both? Well, joining me to discuss this and throw considerable light will be Hap Klopp, the founder of North Face, who's set up many businesses and sold them, and today consults and speaks on the subject extremely well. Thank you so much for joining us, Hap Klopp. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Right. So let me start off with a straight question. So how do you how do you bring about and how do you infuse an entrepreneurial mindset in a large company, and particularly one that's been around for a while? That's a big uh, question, a big ask. But the first thing is through education. Uh, People have to recognize that we're in an age of innovation right now, Uh, that this innovation is an acceleration of society, the likes of which we've never seen. Uh, First of all, recognize that 95% of all technology, all patents issued have been issued in the last five years. This is an accelerating rate of change. And as a result, we're in exponential times. People are interconnected. And, and there are three driving megatrends, if you will. One is digitization. Another one is democratization. Another one is globalization. If people don't realize it, uh, they are in trouble. A projection that I saw yesterday was that in the year 2030, over 74% of the jobs that existed in 2000 will be gone either because of uh, artificial intelligence, because of democratization, digitization. Companies that don't recognize that are at risk. A simple explanation I could give you is you look at the Kodak company. Kodak in the year 98, uh, 1998, had 170,000 employees, highly profitable, had many of the great employees in terms of technology, lots of patents. In fact, they had the first digital patents. But they were making so much money on photo processing that they refused to to process and move ahead with the digital. They just didn't look at it. Today, Kodak is bankrupt. None of those people have a job any longer. And that is a short period of time. Look at the smartphone. 15 years ago, it didn't exist. And now we're addicted to it. We cannot live without it. What, what co- people have to realize is there's no sinecure any longer for a long life business. You have to be constantly innovating. You have to look at the megatrends that exist out there and realize that if you haven't been disrupted, you will be. Think of the taxi industry. They were very safe and secure, they thought, until suddenly Uber comes along. Uh, Uber and Lyft and, and all the rest of the, uh, the companies that follow that. Uh, it, it couldn't have happened without the digitization. Uh, couldn't have happened without the democratization, but it was there. Numerous industries are at threat right now. And so every company has to sit back and say, we can't just maximize profits. And that's usually done by taking yesterday's products or services and continually selling and selling and selling until they finally die. But rather, while they're in their product life cycle, we have to spend money introducing new ideas we have to, in fact, steal some of the money and the profits and the cash flow being made by the successful products to invest in risk and risk starting. 
and then that goes to the final element, people have to realize that the risk-reward has changed. Right now, the risk is being disrupted by outside people. It's not a risk of not knowing. You can't have perfect information because things are moving too quickly. And I, I believe it was Voltaire, the uh, French philosopher, said, perfect is the enemy of good. And today, that is absolutely true. So you have to develop a mindset. And that mindset in Silicon Valley, where I reside, uh, is one of scaling, of taking chances, of recognizing that it's okay to fail. Uh, Thomas Edison is the one who said, that, you know, I've never failed. I've just found 10,000 reasons that something doesn't work. You have to have a mindset and you're going to take chances because that is the best path for the business of the future. Right. So you're also saying that in many ways, if you do not have an entrepreneurial mindset, you will be fighting for survival. So you have to have that because it's not about growing your company or finding new business lines and new projects to work on, but it's about your very survival in future. That, that is correct. And as I said, it's an educational uh exercise. So uh, one of the things you need to do in these companies is bring in examples of what's happening outside. Certainly software is disrupting all companies. Artificial intelligence is hitting companies. Uh, things like automation, driverless cars is going to hit all the industry. Uh, alternate energy is there. Uh, you know, Smartphones, of course, now people have more computer power in their uh, purse or their pocket than people had when they first went to the moon. Automation, of course, all those things are out there. I, I think that you, it's adopting a mindset. I call it a Silicon Valley mindset uh, because many of the unicorn companies have been started here with that attitude. But a, a key factor is that you cannot be afraid of failing because the reason that a lot of large companies do not innovate is that they know what they know and they're terribly afraid of what they don't know. So they're afraid to try new directions or they're afraid to try uh, things that maybe won't work out. But in Silicon Valley, everybody is willing to take chances because they set their sights so high. How do you drill this down? Uh, you know, I can I can understand that, let's say, the top management or the CEO sees this, is able to visualize what could happen uh, or what could go wrong if, if you didn't anticipate the future effectively. But how do you drill this down, again, one, uh, once again, in a legacy company with thousands of employees, exactly like Kodak? Well, I, th I think you have to do a couple of things. One, again, I go back to education. I'm a big believer in education, and, and I think those that fail to look around them and just uh, look at their own company, uh, will not adopt that because there's so many reasons why not to do something that there's problems. Uh, so what I believe is that you actually take people around you. There's education that has to continually be there, executive education. You have to take groups of your people out to places together. When I ran the North Face, one of the things we did is on a, a regular basis, we would put uh, people from different departments together to go out and see customers. We would bring people from design, people from sales, people from finance and operations, and we would do it all over the globe. And when they would come back, they would talk about what they saw and the changes they saw. It was only when that group of people got together that you were able to solve something. Because in many of the large companies, no individual can say yes, but lots of them can say no. So the, the art is bringing them all together 
and getting them to talk about things where they tie to the overall goal. Now, just to give you one example, and people will probably take issue with what I say here, but you need to look at some companies that exist right now that maybe uh, sub-optimize their performance because they didn't change. And let me uh, bring out the case of Microsoft. Microsoft under Bill Gates uh, was dominant in its field. In the year 2000, however, he brought in uh, Steve Ballmer to run the company. Ballmer was not the one who looking at new ideas. Uh, Ballmer did great things for the financial stock. Uh, they tripled sales. Uh, they raised profits. Uh, but maybe it was at the expense of the long term. For example, in terms of operating systems, in 2000, they had 95% of the operating systems for laptop computers. Now they have 1% of the operating system for mobile phones, which is the direction of the future. They missed out on search. Google did that. They missed out on smartphones. Certainly Apple and many others did that. They missed out on media music. Apple did that. They missed out on cloud computing to Amazon. They missed out on apps, which Apple did. What what happened was Ballmer organized the company around their existing businesses and did not pay attention to the new things that happened out there. Now, in 2014, Sajid Nadella uh, took charge, and he's now changed it back to what it was before. But I would argue that, and I think if people look at it, they'd realize that Microsoft was at risk because they didn't change. We could also say, what's happening at Apple now? It, Apple's stock could be very strong, just like Microsoft was for a while. But is Tim Cook providing the innovation, and I'm talking about product, but also uh, reorganization of the company, et cetera, is he providing that same thing that Steve Jobs did, or is he managing the company without an idea towards the future? I think school's still out on that, but I would say there's some parallels between Microsoft and Apple that one should look at. So if you can bring these two people and say, okay, these are billion-dollar companies. Yours is a billion-dollar company. Are you facing that same thing? Are you taking enough risk? Is innovation getting out of your department, out, out of research? Because in many of these companies, they've done a lot to develop new ideas. They've done a lot to, to gain patents, but then they aren't being matured into products. There's various tools that people use. In Silicon Valley, there's probably 150 companies that have innovation labs because they want to capture some of the the uniqueness that exists in this culture. Also, groups come into uh, Silicon Valley, as they do elsewhere, but companies send them in so that they can visit other companies and learn about the culture, learn about the, the product innovation, learn about change and various ideas. I think you have to spend money doing that. You can't just focus on your existing business. You've got to focus on what are other people doing. I think groups like that and working with universities, uh, bringing out some of the professors to talk about not only uh, new technologies but new ways of doing business is very good. Right. If I were to ask you to look at it from an India point of view, you know, India has uh, very large information technology services companies but almost none in the product space, at least none of significance. And uh, and this is a strength that's uh, in services that's been there for a few decades and is continuing to last, but there's no clear sense of horizon on whether this will continue to be the mainstay or can these companies continue to hold their position in the marketplace. So how would you look at this situation and comment on it? 
Well, I think it's going to change. I, uh, as I mentioned to you when we talked previously, uh, I just finished giving a presentation uh, to the Maruti Suzuki company in Abu Dhabi to, where they brought in all of their vendors who ran the major companies that, that supply them. And as you know, Maruti Suzuki has been very successful in the automobile business in India. But what they were doing was trying to get all of their vendors online with their long-term plans so they can be able to move forward because alone they couldn't make it. They needed their suppliers to have a similar commitment to investing in the future for the future. So uh, so I see a company like that highly successful that can move into these other areas. But uh, one of the reasons uh, has been that to up to uh, the last few years, the actual Indian market itself was not a great one for consumer products because of the stratification. There was certain numbers of people that wanted them, but uh, in the United States, in Europe, uh, there, there are many more people in the consuming portion, 100%, if you would say, or 95% of the market are looking for products as a way to go. Uh, obviously, in India, there's all the capability to produce. There's certainly the the uh, uh, manufacturing capability, but the infrastructure of moving product around is not as strong as it is elsewhere in the world. Uh, but it's easy to move things like uh, the intellectual capital around. So that I think that's been an inhibitor. But the infrastructure is improving. More people are coming into the consumer market in India. Those ideas are good to go elsewhere in the world. And then recognize, as I said, one of the drivers is going to be globalization. No longer are there any isolated markets. Every company is born global. Every company uh, has uh, products that are sold globally, that the materials are sourced globally, uh, their employees are global, there's global product development being done, and so we're just on the tipping point where that's going to happen. So Indian companies are not going to be Indian companies in the future, in my view. Those successful ones are going to become global companies. And and tools such as computers and, and travel are all going to be integrated into making global companies work. Right. So as someone who set up original brands like North Face, obviously being one of the most uh, distinguished ones, do you see opportunity for companies who've been vendors, uh, OEMs, original equipment manufacturers or suppliers, service providers to larger companies making that transition from unbranded to branded and branded product or service? Absolutely. As long as they take it seriously. Uh, a lot of people have tried to do that, and they say, well, it's so easy. We're doing all the, the heavy lifting. We're doing all the hard work, and what they're doing is easy, and then they jump into it and find that it isn't easy. Uh, you, if you take on the task of moving from an OEM or a white-label supplier into being a consumer product or being a consumer service at the end, what you have to realize, that's a business in and of itself, but it is happening. It's happening because of a variety of things. One uh, certainly is digitization. Now people can sell things online. Previously, they had to have a very cumbersome uh, system that was dictated ac across the world. Now people want to make products everywhere in the world as opposed to making with a long supply pipeline. Uh, th there's an interesting uh, shift that's going on that, that I would just call your attention to. is something I call the arc of power. And that is, particularly in consumer goods, but also in services, historically, all of the power, all of the, uh, the control was in the hands of the manufacturer. 
think of Henry Ford when he developed his first car. What he said, you can have it any way you want. It'll be black. And in doing that, I mean, he chose black because it's the fastest drying paint. Uh, but also we knew is if you could amass a lot of capital and spend it on tooling, you could make enough cars that the middle market could suddenly be satisfied. And with that volume, you'd be efficient. But key to his thinking is there is only going to be one product. Over time, the power shifted to the middlemen. Those are oftentimes retailers or distributors, but they started dictating what was going to be given to the market. They determined what hours uh, something would be sold, if it was being sold in, in cities or if it was being sold in, in uh, online or direction. Uh, they determined what the selection was, but the reality was they, too, wanted a limited amount of variety. Why? Because they had a very long supply chain that uh, was at risk because they had to commit long before they knew what they were going to sell so that they might get stuck with a lot of product that didn't sell. So by solving it, they did it by limiting the op options that a customer might have. In today's world, now with digitization, now with things like Alibaba and Amazon and whatever, the consumer believes they are in charge and they can get what they want, when they want it, how they want it, at what price they want it. And in doing that, one of the key things that differs is a consumer wants variety. And when the consumer wants variety, it's either going to come from something like Alibaba, Amazon, or online, or it's going to come from an alternate thing, which is global manufacturing close to home, where you can suddenly make a product that immediately solves demands. And there are a couple tools that are doing that. One is going to be 3D printing. Another one is going to be knitting as opposed to woven products. And so companies are going to have to be able to cite manufacturing, distribution, close to market. And, uh, side story is there's a company called Maersk, uh, which is a shipping company. <laughs> and Maersk is spending a lot of money on 3D printing. One would say, why? They're a shipping company. Well, the, the first reason they're doing it is that uh, the big cost in shipping right now is downtime when their ships are in port because they have to have repairs. So what they're doing is putting 3D printing into ports where they can make parts for their ships because historically they would have to fly pieces in. Uh, they're very cumbersome and heavy and they couldn't get it done. So now they can actually, at their 20 leading ports, they can make those things more rapidly to get their ships on the water. But that's only part of the roadmap. The second part of the roadmap is when things become so miniaturized, they're going to be putting 3D printing on every ship. And as a result, they will be printing uh, parts for their ship while they're in transit. And then they go to the next one, which is the real driver of what they're doing, and that is what they're saying is that so much product is going to be shipped in the future is going to be not raw materials that we have right now. It's actually going to be finished goods. And we have to understand that because it's going to change all of the shipping lines that we have, the various leagues that we have, the, the routes that we have, which have basically been connecting raw materials with finished goods market. We're now going to be shipping finished goods to various places. And they see that whole transition coming about as a result of the change that's happening in the marketplace. That sounds fascinating. So let me ask you, uh, as we run to the end of this segment, uh, you know, all of this that you've said is also throws light on what the opportunities are for entrepreneurs or those who are striking out for the first time. 
Now, if you were to look at your own experience and, you know, if really, if Hap Klopp were to be young and this was the late 60s, uh, what would you be doing today and what are the kind of opportunities that you would be looking out for? Well, there's a lot. I'm excited about <laughs> it. I mean, one, one I, I teach a course at Holt University about uh, corporate entrepreneurism because I think there's so much uh, opportunity tied up in large companies that isn't liberated. If you can help them liberate that, there's going to be major breakthroughs. I see kind of six megatrends that exist out there, and I would capitalize on one of those within a silo I have. Uh, the first one is uh, people in the Internet. Everybody's interconnected now, and that creates a massive, rapid explosion scaling of a business that you could have not had before. Uh, this, the second thing is IoT. Uh, the Internet of Things, that's going to be a big opportunity breaking out there. Artificial intelligence and big data, huge opportunity. Uh, the, the sharing economy, whether it's Uber that we talked about or Lyft that we talked about, there's all sorts of democratization. There is an interesting group here in the U.S. for small entrepreneurial companies called WeWork. And it's basically collaborative expansion of retail offices where you never uh, – are firmly cited, you're just in their building, and as you grow, you take on more space or you move elsewhere, but that sharing economy is happening there. Uh, the digitization of matter is another big thing that's happening, and then I would say computing, uh, communications, storage everywhere, huge opportunities exist out there. I happen to like consumer goods, and when I look at consumer goods, I start, okay, what's the new breakthrough going to be? The breakthrough probably is going to be in uh, the Internet of Things, it's going to be in wearable technology. I've served on some boards of, uh, of industry groups where we're developing wearable technology. There's massive things in terms of sensors uh, that can measure uh, your body and what you're doing and be able to provide medical feedback. I will say it, I don't have the time to do it because I'm uh, getting older, but the first trillionaire is going to be somebody who creates solutions to the, the medical problems in the world. So much of our money is spent on, on medical medicine and the delivery of medicine that some solutions to that is going to create the trillionaire that exists out there. And it could come from something as simple as, as biomonitoring with sensors or pills or what have It could be from a variety of... Or, and, and, or even a cure for the common cold. Absolutely. If you solve that, think how many people would want it. Uh, so I, I, I think the trillionaire is going to be in the medical area, but there's also major breakthroughs. The other day I was looking at something where uh, we believe we've gotten to the end of Moore's Law, which basically says computing power accelerates every every uh, year or doubles every year because we've gotten to the extremes of the speed with which electrons can move. However, if you put together – people from the biosciences with people electrical, what they've seen is you can actually use human DNA as a basis for a computer because it, it handles so much more information. So the great ideas, as happened in this case, are in the valley between disciplines, getting people together who have different approaches. In this case, it was biosciences with electrical engineers who realized that, sure, we may be limited in the speed of electrons, and we've done everything we can to put chips together, but we don't have to do that. We can actually bring human DNA and, and use it to transport information, and that is happening right now. Right. That sounds very, very fascinating and even frightening in some ways. Yeah, that, that is the challenge because – 
technology is moving much faster than our ability to either set guardrails or regulations or rules on it. We don't quite know. Uh, going back to Uber again, you can see all of the, the pushback that's happened in the world uh, because of uh, restrictions and laws and what have you. Uh, but it is going to replace it, but it's going to be adjusted. Uh, it's, uh, we're certainly going to have to control it. There's certainly probably, when I talked earlier about 74% of the jobs going away, uh, that's probably going to create a social problem that's just not possible. So, so maybe artificial intelligence is going to become augmented reality as opposed to artificial reality where people are just given tools so there is some work for them to do. Uh, hap- uh, last question, and I can't resist asking this one. Do you still think the outdoors uh, are business and a business opportunity? Absolutely, but it's very fragmented. There's elements in there. When I started out in my business, there's basically camping and sort of long-term, you know, mountaineering, hiking. Now there's ice climbing, there's rock climbing, there's gym climbing. Now there are things like working out, which we did before it becomes yoga and those areas. Each one of those segments are going to break through in new and different ways. And as they do it, you have to embrace it. There was skiing when I uh, grew up, but then – Suddenly, there was something called skate, snowboarding, and that tied to skateboarding, and it did things. So there's going to be a lot of offshoots of these businesses, and some will be very small, and some will be able to grow where they are. So I, I believe it's there. You have to embrace the difference. You have to look uh, at that, and then you have to jump on it. There's a great quote from Goethe, the, the German philosopher, that said something like, uh, whatever you can do, begin it, because beginnings – have genius and power and magic in it. Just talking about it is not going to stimulate anything. Well, Hap, we've run out of time completely. Thank you very much for speaking with us and sharing your experiences at North Face. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts. Thank you. Bye. Don't forget to tune in on BloombergQuint.com or IVM podcast app for the latest edition of Business.next podcast every week. Advertising is dead. Yep, you heard me right. Advertising is dead. We're all in the content business now. Let's not call it news, TV, radio, etc., etc. It's all content and we're in the middle of this weirdly exciting phase where all the borders and lines that have been drawn over decades has been swept away by this lovely thing called the internet. We're a show where we don't dwell on just the stuff that is now, but rather the wider stuff about advertising, media, content and the whole goddamn circus surrounding it. Tune in every Tuesday for our weekly unboxing of the mystery box we used to call advertising. I'm Varun Dugirala, co-founder and content chief at The Glitch, and this is my new podcast, Advertising is Dead. Hello everybody, we have a brand new daily podcast we're working on with Bloomberg Quint. All You Need to Know provides the top news on business, markets, and the economy so that you can stay ahead of the curve. Tune in every morning on BloombergQuint.com, the IVM podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts from.